Welcome to GRC Me, a podcast where we interview governance, risk, and compliance thought leaders on hot topics, industry-specific challenges, and trends to learn about their methods, solutions, and outlook in the space, and hopefully have a little fun doing it. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Clark. Uh, with me today is Ted Arrington, executive partner of Independent Security Advisors, a consulting firm focused on securing high-value assets and performing groundbreaking security research. Uh, he's also the author of best-selling book, Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right, and has given a TED Talk, Why You Need to Think Like a Hacker. Uh, hi, Ted. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm great. Glad to have you here. Um, so just to kind of get started, do you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself and like what your journey has been in the cybersecurity space? Sure. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, I'm one of the partners at ISE, and we're the good guy hackers. So basically that business model is that companies hire us to hack them <laughs> in order to uh, improve the security of those systems. And so that's where Hackable came from. <clears throat> basically all those insights learned from the you know, front lines of ethical hacking, um, addressing some of the very common misconceptions that we've seen. And then like you guys, we also got interested in helping solve the complexity that is vendorous management. So uh, we have a, a tool that helps in that area as well called Start. And those two, I think they're parallel or maybe actually intersecting. You know, how, how does something get hacked? And then how does a company deal with ensuring their suppliers and trusted parties are secure? So that's me. And then I kind of just get on stages and podcasts and try to evangelize so that all of us who are trying to be on the same mission together can, um, you know, be helping people better. That's, that's the goal. That's awesome. Where, like, I think the concept of, well, how did you even get into the hacking space, I guess, into the, mm -hmm. like, did that start from a particular, like, space or job originally, or is that just always something you're interested in? Mm -hmm. I think that my path is maybe a little atypical to people who find find themselves in the ethical hacking world in that a lot of the people who work for us, they come out of computer science programs um, or some sort of engineering and or they were just doing this. Like it's a very, very common discussion where our people are like, I was, this is like my hobby. I was going to do this stuff on the weekend anyway. And so why not have this be my job? And uh, and that's what makes them so successful. They're passionate about it. They're not like punching a clock. They're not waiting for the data. They're like, they love this stuff. Um, but that wasn't my journey. Uh, I, I came at it more from the perspective of entrepreneurship, really. And uh, I was in a completely different field. Uh, I was running a, um, this company had tech that, saves water actually in irrigation lines. And I was just looking for something, I was looking for a different type of challenge that more resonated with some of my personal ethos. And that was when I got introduced to the guy who had become my business partner. And he came out of the PhD program at Johns Hopkins. And he was, you know, he'd been behind all this really cool security research like they had they were the first hacked iphone and they hacked cars and uh they first hacked android os when that you know when the android phone first came out and i was like yes i want to be part of that and so we were wanting to do this business and we have really complementary uh, abilities and skills and it's proven to be just a wonderful relationship but what's 
to me is fascinating. And I think it's maybe interesting also, especially to career switchers or to students. A lot of people feel like, ah, that security thing, it's too late for me. I can't get into it. Um, I don't have this experience. I don't have this degree. Like I'll, I will commonly hear people say something like, you know, I'm a sophomore in college. It's already too late for me to get into security. And I'm like, dude, I was like 27 or something before I figured out how to get into security. Now fast, I didn't know anything. I didn't, I didn't know absolutely anything. Some people would argue I still don't know anything. <laughs> I might even argue I still don't know anything. But I know a couple things now. And so uh, if I can do it, I think anyone can do it. That's super fascinating. Yeah, because I think it's been kind of a common theme, you know, as you move through your career of just like, well, the people who make those pivots, it's not so much like that they had anything other than this like desire to learn and this desire to grow in that space. And I think that's like, it's kind of cool to hear like a, that's a pretty big pivot from like water irrigation to hacking. And it's cool to to kind of see that kind of move up. I mean, I think one of the best things that I love doing is just learning other people's jobs so that you work better with them. That's how you ultimately like work with customers and um, find what, what matters in some way. So I appreciate you sharing that, yeah. that background for it. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine that, most people probably at some point in their life go through a career pivot and uh and that's scary especially when it's like mid-career which is generally i think when people are pivoting because mid-career you're like i'm i'm making decent money now but i'm also at a stage in my life where i have you know maybe some responsibilities and to pivot now i've like started the bottom again and maybe maybe even take a pay cut and uh i think i think it's actually exciting is the way we should think about that. The idea that you get to start complete novice again, like become an, an expert in a thing and then it can be comfortable and becoming a novice again is, is awesome. And I've even, even within security, I've been constantly seeking that novice perspective, like the different things that I've been able to do, like write a book. I never written a book before. Like that was a totally like, all right, now I'm a novice. Like, how do I do this? And those are just like cool moments. I think everyone should pursue, not avoid. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, there's a there's a certain amount of like risk management in that too of like, yeah. well, when's the right time to pivot careers? When's the right time? Uh, so I love that perspective. Um, I think kind of like maybe moving into some of the some of the hacking pieces and learning a little bit about uh like cyber risk, but I kind of start with maybe the. For, like for the masses of like what people know but you know we see news of breaches and incidents and i think we just saw some around like mgm and a few others like very recently but um like what do you see as like the most prevalent cyber risks facing organizations so that is a good question what is and it's one that i field a lot and what's hard about answering it is that it's different for different organizations and they should prioritize different things differently. So to give a universal statement that is true for all would be uh, untrue and unfair. But I think if you were to generalize the two biggest areas that I see that plague every organization, every, I shouldn't say every scientist, you know, we shouldn't say that, but many organizations, one is software and the other is trusted parties. 
that might not be a surprise for someone who runs two companies that addresses one of each of those things. I obviously think that's a big enough problem to dedicate my life to it. But the, the heart of that answer is when we think about the software side, software runs the world. I mean, think of what things that you do in your life right now that don't have a software component to it. And buying a taco from a street vendor in Mexico, like it's like, it's such, it's a small number, but you had to book an airplane to get to Mexico. You had to book, like you booked a car with an Uber, like software got you to be able to go have that cash transaction, uh, you know, across a language barrier. And so software is involved with absolutely everything in every aspect of life. And so when we think about that, the adoption, uh, especially when you're looking at the way that enterprises are starting to think about applications now, I mean, that's that's critical. So I think that's how uh, apps and how software are getting attacked. That's one of the biggest risk factors. And then the supply chain, the ecosystem of vendors, suppliers and and trusted third parties and you look at even the largest enterprises in the world they're they're struggling to do that you know they're doing it with spreadsheets and emails and very few people in their security staff to handle all the requests and yet business needs to move forward right they like i need to work with this vendor so you better approve them like that's kind of the pressure that a lot of enterprises are under but also if they're secure like maybe that's cool and so it's like well how do you balance all that so those are two areas that are uh, i see as absolutely mission critical today and that makes a ton of sense given like the just not just the prevalence of software but the connect like the connectivity of it as well Mm -hmm. where you know we're to your to your example of like going to mexico to buy a street taco with cash is like yeah you had to use something to you know your phone but your phone had access to you know give data to the airline which then in turn had to how do you trust that their vendors are also secure and that i don't know that connection almost creates this web of potential not incidents but like access points which is really 100%. terrifying um what do you think companies are doing right to address those two things uh, that's a great question. Let me let me slightly rephrase the question. The companies who are doing it right, what are they doing? Uh, that's almost a question that you asked. Um, but I want the distinction that I'm making there is that I think there are more companies who are not doing it right than companies who are doing it right. So the companies who are doing the AppSec side right, what they're doing correctly is they're doing uh, security testing of their solutions on a regular basis of uh, six months or more frequently. And they're doing those in a white box fashion. And white box is a methodology where there's a high degree of information shared. So someone builds whatever piece of software and they're like, hey, I wanna see how will this be attacked? Here's how it works. That's what white box is. Black box is like, I'm building this software I'm not going to give you any information because somehow I think that makes you like the attacker, which somehow helps me. And it actually doesn't do that. Black box doesn't emulate real world attack conditions. All it does is limit (laughs) your security assessor. Like the the metaphor is this. If you, um, you're a king and you're in a cat, you're a medieval king, you're in the castle and you want to know, can someone break into the castle and kill you? 
And so you've got, you know, your walls and the drawbridge and the moat and all this stuff. And the, uh, in the black box approach, you'd be like, Hey, come try to break in. Like you'd have some of your knights come try to break it. The knights from one of your like loyal, I don't know what all the terms are, but like one of the other people send their knights over. And the first thing they do is, you know, in black box, they're like, I'm not gonna tell you anything about the castle. And so what they do is they look at this moat and they're like, all right, let's count some alligators. Like, oh, I think we got like five alligators in here. And so now I'll know like there's five. So maybe I can swim around the five. And the king's like, there's seven. What are you doing? And so black box is just like, it, it's, it's dumb because if you did it in a white box, the king would be like, there's seven alligators. You spent no time on the bank of that moat counting alligators because the king already knew it. So it doesn't help anyone to do it that way. So the companies are doing it right. They're doing a white box testing uh, roughly every six months, some, depending on cadence, could be every three months. Uh, and they're they're doing it, yeah, that white box testing on a periodic basis. So that's what the companies are doing it right. They're doing it that way. They're seeing it as um, a competitive advantage over their competition. They're investing in it appropriately. They're not trying to run a vulnerability scanner and say that, that's somehow a quote unquote penetration test when it's not. Uh, so the companies are getting it right. They're th those are the kinds of things they're doing. They're investing appropriately. They're doing the right methodology, um, et cetera. I, I I love the analogy of it of like rather than you know having folks focus the time on like figuring out the way the application is structured and the security around it, you yeah. tell them, and then it's just more of how do you design around it. Right. I think one thing we typically see it as a struggle in like the risk and compliance space is that similar though like competitive advantage conversation where folks will see grc as quote unquote the the carrot not the stick they don't see it as a they see it as an enforcement rather than a like we need to do this because otherwise bad things will happen rather than we need to do this because it gives us an advantage over our competitors or helps us move forward and make strategic decisions to further that, which is what you described in that kind of like, as part of that mm -hmm. piece, which is powerful. Um, yeah, that competitive advantage, uh, it's, it's really powerful. And only, I really am only seeing the more progressive companies doing, like recognizing it that way. And so when I was writing, hackable which is about this side of the equation we're talking about it doesn't it addresses vendor risk management but it's really more about like how do we uh, deal with appsec and uh one of the questions i had to ask myself uh as i was trying to think about the audience i'm writing this for which was basically writing it for the kind of people who like need the type of work that we do right so like they're struggling with certain things and let's give them a reason like let's help them and I can't help everyone, you know? So let's help as many, like a book is an, another way to do that. And so in order to do that, I had to pause and think about why do these companies even hire us? And my natural, of course, reaction was like, oh, because of course security is the right thing to do. It's, it's a noble pursuit. You should do it. But I'm like too much of a pragmatist to realize, like people don't invest in things because it's the right thing to do. It's terrible to say it as a human being, but that's just not the way that companies invest money. Uh, they invest money because they get some sort of business benefit. And so then I started thinking about, well, what's the business benefit? And then the next logical conclusion is, oh, well, it avoids a future loss. 
And like, yeah, that's true. That's 100% a benefit is that, you know, you spend $100,000 now and it avoids $10 million in losses later. But a lot of people, there's this uh, really powerful uh, concept from psychology called recency bias. And recency bias basically says what's happened most recently is the way things are. And so if you haven't been hacked recently, you're like, ah, oh, we're doing it right. This is great. And so it's harder to be like, well, let's spend money on something that might happen in the future. And so then as I continued thinking about it, I realized I got to this point that it was like, wow, all of our customers, they what they're really doing is they're they're really thorough. Like they're paying, they're paying for a more rigorous assessment relative to what others are doing in the marketplace, not just because it's the right thing to do, and not just because it reduces that future loss, but because now they can go to their customers and say, look how much better we are. Like this is a reflection of our ethos. Uh, we we say we care about quality. We care about our customers. We care about your information. Here's us proving it. And that is really, really powerful, I think. And too many organizations are overlooking the power of that. And then that's where the, the vendorist management side comes in is vendors who want to get enterprises to do business with them. Just doing the minimum, just being like, give me the checks, the checklist and I'll, I'll check those lists. Like, you, yeah, sure, you can do that. But you're going to stand out when you're doing something more rigorous and thorough than the absolute minimum that's being asked of you. Yeah, that's a, it's not just a transaction, it's a relationship. And so yeah. every relationship is built on that trust. And so how do you, how do you not just talk the talk around it, but walk that walk so that people yeah. can feel and trust that? That's powerful. What I, um, that. I, I talked about uh, uh, when I was analyzing this idea of trust, right? I think that's anyone in, any aspect of cybersecurity will be like, yeah, it's about trust. And I started thinking about that idea of trust, right? And it's like, trust is what everyone wants when they're trying to pursue any sort of security agenda. And that got me thinking about, well, what are people actually doing? And a lot of times people don't realize they're doing this. They're actually doing the opposite. They're triggering fear. So a lot of people will say things like this, you know, they might get a security questionnaire from their... Uh, enterprise customer they want to work with. And they're like, oh man, there's like three, four, 500 questions on this thing. And so they just wind up writing not applicable to as many of those questions as they can. Thinking like, this is stupid. I want to move past this. I got other things to do. But what does that do? That triggers fear in the recipient of that information because now they're like, hold up a second. They said not applicable to this question that's actually really important to us. And I'm pretty sure in your type of business, this definitely is ap applicable. I now have to look closer. So you're actually separating yourself. You're creating distance inadvertently in the pursuit of trying to gain trust. And it's a, it's a wild, wild thing that people don't realize that they're doing. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that's fascinating to me. And like almost that like lack of thinking through the recipient of those answers kind of approach of like, well, they must be asking for a reason. They're not just asking to ask in most cases. So what is the, what's the core behind it? And how can I use that to, to build and further the relationship so that they feel confident that we're the right partner in that situation? hundred percent. Yeah. Um, when, so, I mean, we talked about like, we kind of hit on, you know, what, what the right companies are doing kind of the flip side of like, what's what's the worst thing a company could be doing in that space? Like, what is the thing that you just want, like you want people to avoid at all costs? <laughs> um, let me tell you a story because I think it's very illustrative of the wrong mindset. 
I don't think everyone is necessarily doing what this story describes expressly, but the mindset a lot of people might have. And the short answer to that is this dismissive or minimizing approach to security, right? Of being like, here's another hoop I got to jump through to get this contract. Like, get rid of that mindset. Um, so there was this uh, one one time when we were publishing some research, we'd been looking at a bunch of routers, like small office, home office routers, definitely the one that you have at your home office, the one that I have at mine. And we were looking at them for security vulnerabilities. And uh, we found a whole bunch as we kind of expected we might. And so we found all these vulnerabilities and we went through this process that's called responsible disclosure. And responsible disclosure is where security researchers submit the findings to the afflicted party so they can fix it prior to publishing it. Because we're not trying to go um, give the attack blueprint out to the bad guys. And it's a collaborative process. And, um, and there are cases where people don't respond or they ignore it or whatever, and then you have to publish the redacted results. And so it's like just not as good for everyone. It's so much better if the thing's fixed. And um, so we, I think there were maybe seven manufacturers who had vulnerabilities discovered throughout the courses. There were like hundreds of issues we found across those seven manufacturers. And so we submitted all this to the respective vendors, uh, manufacturers of these products. And uh, there was one in particular who just didn't respond to anything. Not even like, thanks, we'll, we'll move it on. Uh, they didn't respond to anything. And then we're like, all right, well, responsible disclosure has expired. Usually you give them a time timeline. It's like, hey, in 90 days, we're going to publish this. So like, that should be enough time for us to get it fixed. And um, they didn't respond. Responsible disclosure expires. So we go, we publish the report. And uh, I can't remember which outlet that was in, but it was in several big ones. I think maybe we broke it with like CNN or CNET or, or somebody. I don't remember who. But like an hour later, that company called and uh, they were like, we saw the report. And we're like, you definitely saw the report before this, but okay. Um, <laughs> and they're like, we would like to change things. And we're like, this is fantastic. This is the, like, we, the whole point of security research is to make things better. And so to hear an organization call us like, okay, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe somehow all our attempts to supply information to them somehow didn't get through. We try all these different ways, contact all different people, use their like stated, you know, addresses to send things to. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. This is a really good thing. And they're like, we're going to send a VP to your office tomorrow. Awesome. We'll be ready for him. We'll have lunch. It's perfect. So the guy comes in the next day. He shows up and we figure out within 30 seconds that he's not there to talk about how do we change the product to improve it? He's there to talk about how do we change the report? And we're like, well, we can do that. That's actually kind of the point is, you know, you find the vulnerability, we remediate the vulnerability, then we verify the remediation. So like, that's the path. So remediate the vulnerabilities and then we'll verify that. And then the report will be updated. And that's a good thing for you saying like, hey, look, we took it seriously. And uh, it became clear that wasn't what he wanted. He, he just wanted us to, Changed the report without, um, without any work, and I wish I'd framed it. I don't know where this went. It has since been it's it's in a filing cabinet somewhere. But he hands us a memo that they wrote on their letterhead, and the memo says, "We self-certify 
that these vulnerabilities no longer exist. And there was literally, I'm not exaggerating, the like rubber stamp. There was a rubber stamp on it that said approved or certified or something like that. And I'm like, this is the best thing that anyone has ever handed me. Uh, in terms of in, in terms of being hilarious, because it just doesn't work that way. You know, that's like going to, I don't know, your doctor and your doctor's like, hey, so last time you were in here, you were overweight. Did you lose the weight? And they're like, no, I'd like you to just say that I have a different weight number. It's like, it doesn't work that way. You got to put in the work to get the result. And I'm going to self-certify that I've lost weight. On top yeah. of that. And I, here's my, here's my paper saying that. So. Right. Right. That's incredible. Yeah. So I, yeah. yeah. Ahead, sorry. So I don't, I don't think most companies are doing that. Was, that's an extreme story, yeah. obviously, but the underlying principle to it is the mindset. And the mindset is security is an obstacle. And how do we remove the obstacle? Which in itself maybe isn't that bad, but it's trying to make it not be a thing and to remove it and to dismiss it and to minimize it instead saying, okay, if this is an obstacle or a barrier, how do we turn it into an opportunity? And that's what the companies are doing, right? It's turning it into an opportunity and the companies are doing it wrong is they're, they're misunderstanding how to actually approach it and what its role is. That makes a lot, yeah, that's a lot of sense of like the, it's almost viewing that, yeah, viewing it as an opportunity versus ignoring it completely as just something that shouldn't exist because we don't want it to. Right. Um, it's, I mean, that's kind of interesting of like, you know, they acknowledge it, they send someone, they did it. Like where, um, when you think about those organizations and what they, like, do you think, say they're like CISO, acknowledge that vulnerability in any way like how should um how should almost how should organizations be structured to address that kind of like to be successful in security hmm. in terms of the reporting hierarchy yeah mm -hmm. yeah uh so that's a good question because there's actually a few levels to your question one of which would be its own minefield and maybe two two in the depths of the politics of what the CISO role is um, but in terms of how we think about the reporting hierarchy, the CISO, and quite frankly, anyone with a C in their title should report to the CEO. Now, that's not the way that most organizations are set up. Most organizations are set up where uh, the CTO or the CIO are who, or uh, both of those usually exist in an organization and they report to the CEO. And then the CISO reports to one of those two. Sometimes it's even a further layer down. But you're not a chief anything if you don't report to the CEO. So we do need a security voice who's heard at the executive level. We definitely need a CISO. Uh, and I say we, I'm talking about companies who have something to protect need a CISO. And that person needs to report uh, to, the, to the CEO. Now, if an organization wants to have security reporting lower in the chain, first of all, they shouldn't have a C in the title. Um, and well, they just shouldn't do that period because what here's, and here's why you shouldn't do that is that let's say the CISO reports to the CTO, the CTO now reports to the CEO. And when the CEO says, okay, tell me about all things CTO, the CTO, he or she is going to have, you know, their whatever, 10 top priorities and security will be one of them, but it will be one of them. And it probably won't even be the number one. And so when push comes to shove, security won't get 
the prioritization that it needs. And if you're set up like that, now this sounds like oversimplifying, but it, it really is this simple. If security doesn't have a voice to leadership, then security will not have the prioritization that it needs. So you literally, if your CISO does not report to your CEO, you are not prioritizing security. And if that's intentional, that's okay. It's okay, it's okay if a company says, security is not important to us. I would actually prefer that a company says that and be honest with themselves. But when they say, we take security seriously, security is a priority for us, and the, they don't have a CISO or the CISO doesn't report to the CEO, you are actually acting in opposition to your stated words. Maybe to challenge that a little bit, like say, I mean, you mentioned that the you know the CTO does have a set of priorities. Like what if even with them though, they have this mindset of, you know, security is a competitive advantage. It's always going to be our number one. Is that still that same, you still see that same risk involved in that reporting structure? Definitely. Yeah. So what you just described to me sounds wonderful. I would love to have that CTO in any of every organization. Um, but if you were to talk to many CTOs, I think you wouldn't find too many who would say that, who would say that security is their top priority. Their priorities are things like uh, efficiency, optimization, change, the roadmap, all those types of things. And it's got to be secure. Like that's what a lot of them will say. Um, I'm in a fortunate position that I've been asked to serve as an advisor to this really cool group of CTOs. And so it's almost funny to me that I got invited because it's like, it's literally CTOs talking about CTO problems and then me. So whenever the word security is like triggered, I'm like, I can, I'll help you with that. And one of the trends that I've seen across this group is that they all definitely do care about security. They are aware of security, but I don't think any of them would say that they're a security expert and that even that security is the number one top priority. And it's not the thing by which they're measured. CTO is not measured by whatever metrics you might want to use for security. And so if you're not measured by that, how is it ever going to be the, the top priority? So I think what you described, I would love that to be the case. I just don't think it's realistic. I mean, I, uh, that's, that makes sense. I'd be interested in like then on that concept of measuring success then for the CTO, for the CISO in the security space, like what are common like metrics that you would say define success for that role or for mm -hmm. that space? Uh, I wouldn't, so those are two different things, right? How is a CTO measured and how is a CISO measured? And how is a CISO measured is a really hard question because a CTO, it's a little more straightforward. You can look at things like, um, just like what, exists. <laughs> I'm way oversimplifying, but you can attach numbers to what exists and what will exist and how quickly did it exist and you know how efficient is it and blah, blah, blah. There's like tons of different ways you can measure that. Security is a little bit harder to measure because uh, security is essentially the absence of a bad thing. And you can't, you can't measure a negative, right? And so you measure these other things like risk management effectively. Um, one of the ways that I've advocated that uh, CISOs should be measured, one of the ways, not necessarily all of the ways, but one of the ways, would be things like, how many security vulnerabilities have we remediated? That could either be an absolute value or it could be a percentage. And because I think that's such a powerful number uh, because it says, well, first of all, we have to find them, which means we're investing in the appropriate ways. 
then we have to actually allocate the resources to fix them. And so doing those, the combination of those things is, is really, really powerful because now you're not a CISO being forced in the corner to say like, well, we haven't been hacked. And it's like, well, no, here's some actual KPIs that we can speak to that correlate our investment of dollars and person power to an outcome. And, uh, and actually one of the things I put in Hackable was um, some metrics based on just our own uh, experience with assessments and how you can correlate level of effort, which you can correlate to um, expense or cost, and how you can correlate uh, the level of effort to the vulnerability output that you might be looking at. And by being able to make those correlations, now a CISO can go to the board or whoever and say, uh, here's why I need a million dollars this year. And I can put some numbers to it. And here's how I'd spend that million dollars. It's not just on people. It's all, it's on these outcomes that we could actually measure. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. Um, there's a really cool book called Upstream, but I think that should be where they, they basically talk about problem solving through that same lens of like, well, how do you, if you're truly doing your job right, you're avoiding these problems. So how do you avoid, like, how do you measure something that can be avoided? And I actually think it's something probably relevant in like the third party space as well. Of like, well, you know, how do you, how do you know that you've done enough due diligence to avoid something bad happening with like of the third party that you didn't do business with or the control you put in place to avoid something. So um, like how should, like, do you have similar metrics or like alignment for like security teams when they're thinking about the third party risk space? Hmm. Yes, probably. Uh, the data that I have, I'd have to organize it maybe slightly different in the context of, of this question. But I think that these types of things, what you measure would be things like um, the types of controls that you like, do we have controls? How many are there? How often are, have they been updated? Like, how do they correlate to um, our, our known attack scenarios? And how, how many of our approved vendors, like how many vendors that we're using actually are approved or meet a certain criteria versus... I mean, in any organization, any enterprise, there's going to be vendors who have maybe some conditional approval or some special acceptance or just straight up in some like shadow back end deal. They were, they're being used even though no one knows it. And so like figuring out how do we make sure that we exceed a certain percentage of our vendors have met a certain criteria based on what business it is that they do for us. Uh, those are all things that are actually probably much easier to manage than have we been hacked. It's like, well, we can count our vendors. We can count what they're doing. There's a lot more that you can measure. I, you see, you mentioned this, the, the, like, you know, the shadow IT concept of like, you don't, sometimes things get through the crack. You don't know mm -hmm. what you don't know. Um, how would you advise security teams on like answering that question of like, how do you address and put controls in place around the unknown unknowns, the things that you don't know. Yeah. Well, there's a way I can answer that specific to vendors and then a way I can answer it more um, broadly across all types of risk. Um, but across how the, the vendor landscape, right? How a particular you know business unit might wind up using a vendor that hasn't gone through the security vetting process or whatever i mean that really comes down to just awareness and communication right so a, an organization the the security team has to be communicating across departments why 
and and how they're actually helping, not hurting the performance of the organization. I'm delivering a keynote coming up here in, in a few weeks um, for exactly that. A uh, uh, movie studio is doing an internal summit so that they so that it's put on by the content security team so they can communicate to everyone else. Here's how we help you. Like, here's why this is important. And so that someone isn't out there inadvertently. It's one thing if they intentionally are like, I know I'm supposed to do that, but I'm gonna do this other thing. That's a different type of problem you have to address. But someone who just doesn't know how to bring a vendor through their program, uh, awareness, you gotta communicate that. And then more broadly, how do you anticipate the unknown unknowns? Uh, this is actually the pinnacle of the ethical hacking profession is that I have this idea of like, you can imagine a triangle. Uh, as you go up the triangle, they, the steps, these are like the steps of a hacking process. And as you go up, they start from the things that are maybe the most foundational, most fundamental, the things that are most aligned to automation, like tools can do that kind of stuff. And as you go up, they become, they require more manual, they require a creative problem solving human, the complexity of skills required, and experience required increases. And the very tippy top of that pyramid is this idea you asked about, the unknown unknowns. And so unknown unknowns in an organization, I, I sort of organize them into there's maybe, I think about them in three types, um, but they are, there's arguably they could be organized differently. But so there, one is novel versions of common vulnerabilities. So it might be like, oh, well, here's a type of injection attack that is a known, common type of issue but the way that it's deployed in order to attack this particular system like that's never been seen before uh, another would be uh, zero day vulnerabilities in your supply chain so zero days are vulnerabilities that are exploitable right now in the wild where the defender has zero days to uh, fix it before it's exploitable and the supply chain is what we've been talking about with your vendor uh ecosystem uh, and then the third type would be um previously unknown attack methods that might exist. Attackers might be doing right now. There are definitely attack techniques that are happening right now that no one knows, no one on the defender side, on the good side knows about, but that attackers are doing. Eventually we'll discover it and be like, wow, that stinks. And then, you know, we'll adapt and evolve. Um, so how do you deal with these unknown unknowns? And that's what ethical hackers do. Ethical hackers are life learners, are relentless in like learning new techniques and then trying new techniques. And that's why you work with outside third parties that are experts in this type of stuff. Because even to ethical hackers, there are things that are unknown, but that's how you continue to evolve and to iterate and to deal with this, you know, the proverbial arms race where the bad guys are getting better and then the good guys are getting better and you just keep leveling up. And that's how you deal with it. I, I do want to come back to the the like what makes the ethical hacker so successful in this case. But one thing would be like, you know, with these unknowns, you then focus on, well, how do you just like react to them? If you can't be, if you can't prevent them, then are there certain steps security teams should take to like be ready to react in the situations where these unknowns unknowns do occur? Yeah. So it's debatable. No, maybe it's not debatable. But the question whether or not you can prevent the unknown unknowns, uh, there's a, some nuance to that. Uh, but but having the effort to try to discover unknown unknowns and work with organizations who are constantly pushing themselves 
That is actually a preventative mechanism. I forget what the question was. I started answering a different yeah. one. Well, no, <laughs> no, I, no, because I appreciate that. Because I like, I probably would not think about just discovery of mm -hmm. these as a preventative measure. I would think of like, well, that because even then, in a way, that is, in my mind, preventative because you have someone trying to find them. Like you're still yeah. looking for those in some way. But there's also the like, well, when it does occur, how should teams mm. prepare for that? Like, is it gotcha. a question of if or when, or is it, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so there's a few sides to the security coin, right? And one is prevention, and then the other is uh, detection and response. So the the center point of those of the coin, I guess, is the breach itself. So like, can you prevent the breach is one side, that's the preventative side, and then the other is the breach has happened, what do you do now? And so that's a whole field unto itself, and that's an area that I – I'm personally not uh, focused on. We've been really focused on the preventative side, but the way that organizations deal with that is having uh, built in what's called defense in depth. So defense in depth is a strategy that layers uh, tools and techniques, and it does two things. One, it prevents the likelihood that an attacker is successful in getting in. And then two, it reduces the likelihood that the attacker is successful in exfiltrating whatever it is they're trying to get. So to break into an organization, to get access to their, let's say, intellectual property, that's part of it. And then the other part is now they need to extract it, how to, how they actually like get it out. And so there's all kinds of tools and techniques to try to prevent that logging, monitoring, data loss prevention, th those types of tools. So there's a lot of tools that help with that. Um, having... There's this idea of red teams and blue teams. And so red teams are uh, essentially security testers who will perform a simulated attack against an organization in order to test the response of the blue team. And the blue team's job is to say, oh, we're under attack. Now we, you know, we follow our disaster recovery, our incident response. We do a certain series of steps in order to quarantine the attack, to you know, mitigate the outcome. And maybe a great example of response would be what happened several months ago with Colonial Pipeline. Now, I'd never heard of Colonial Pipeline before this particular attack. I don't think anyone outside of the business of delivery of gas had ever heard of them, but um, most Americans know Colonial Pipeline now as the either the largest or maybe one of the largest suppliers of petroleum and uh, petroleum products, which I believe gasoline I don't know if gasoline is different from petroleum. Maybe I should know that. But they're how you get gasoline to a gas station so you can put gas in your car uh, all up and down the East Coast. And they suffered a, a cyber attack. And they, on their own, chose to take their system offline. And that was a preventative measure. That was to ensure that the attack itself would be quarantined, that it couldn't spread further, couldn't cause more damage. And um, in a way, I, I think that was actually a very brave decision because what it meant was that they forced themselves into the headline news because now you couldn't get gas uh, up and down the East Coast. So it, it impacted everyone uh, who's living in that area. And it was just headline news. Um, maybe they could have tried to hide it, maybe let the attack get worse, but not let it get into the news. But they made the choice to quarantine it, which meant that people were going to write stories about it. And so now people know about Colonial Pipeline. And if you Google, I, I have done this, if you just start typing in Colonial Pipeline, like I said, they're they're the number one largest supplier or one of the, they're like, they're a dominance in their business. 
But that's not what comes up. That's not what Google autofills. What autofills is cyber attack, colonial pipeline cyber attack. And it's like, man, that's that's kind of a bummer of an outcome. But that is a great example of what you like some of the techniques that people can have is they can actually isolate an attack by taking their own systems offline in order to deal with it. Very cool. That's yeah. Uh, the, the concept of defense in depth, I wouldn't, you know, I think for the lay person, there's a lot of focus on how do you just stop people from getting in mm-hmm. and less so on like, well, how do you stop them from getting out? And like thinking about that, there's a big through line of that process for the hacker and like designing that system to stop it from, from both directions, yep. you know, just don't think about what's here's what's so cool about defense in depth. This that's really nerdy that I just said that like defense in depth is cool. Um, <laughs> what's so cool about it <laughs> is so there's this trite phrase that is said in security a lot, which is that the, um, uh, uh, the, Attacker only needs to be right once. The defender needs to be right every time. The attacker only needs to be right once. Uh, but defense in depth actually flips that on its head. And that the, the attacker needs to get every single step right. And the defender only needs to flag it once to stop the attack. And so that's super powerful when you think about that. It, it changes the conversation from this sort of like defeatist, nihilistic perspective of like, it's not if, it's when. Like people always talk about that. And it's like, how is that a helpful thought? Even the, even if it's true, it's not that helpful. Um, changing it from that, like, well, we're going to get hacked to here's some stuff we could do that reduces the likelihood or reduces the impact or both. And the metaphor, I think how we can visualize this, we go back to that castle, right? The king is in the castle. Think about how a castle is built, right? A castle has all these layers of defense. It has the moat. It has the drawbridge. It has the archers up in the turrets as the guys with like the hot oil spilling it down the side. And then you get in the castle and there's like concentric rings of perimeter walls. And then you get further in and then there's like the King's keep and protecting the King's keep is his own personal guard. And those are layers of defense that the attackers have to actually defeat each one in order to get all the way to the King. That's to get in. Then they kill the King. If they want to live, they have to figure out how do I fight my way back out of this stuff? I'm in the castle surrounded by my enemy now. And so the likelihood that someone can get all the way in, kill the king, get all the way out and not die uh, becomes reduced because of those uh, defense mechanisms. I'm chuckling because the king's still dead. But yeah, I yeah. <laughs> if the other person wants to get out, though, like there's, yeah, yeah imagine having to get yeah. past all those, those twice. <laughs> or if you thought about it, maybe instead of that's a good improvement to the metaphor, uh, maybe instead of you got in, you killed the king and it was just a suicide <laughs> mission. You're like, I want to kidnap the king's daughter for some mm-hmm. reason. OK, now I have the daughter. How am I getting this person out? Yeah. How do we? Yeah. How do we steal this? Yeah. Uh, sorry. I didn't mean to <laughs> hit on the metaphor. Yeah, no, it's it's a good improvement. I'm like, I'm so dead. <laughs> I'm already dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You, I mean, a little earlier on this, because I mean, like there's, I've always thought of that as like the Swiss cheese model. Like you put a bunch of pieces of Swiss cheese in a row, like what are the odds that you're going to hit all the way through the hole mm-hmm. to get through all of them in a way rather than like letting the Swiss cheese stop it. Um, but I like the, I like the castle metaphor. I'll start using that more often. <laughs> um, a little while ago, you, you had talked about when we're talking about the unknown unknowns, you'd hit on like, you know, hackers 
and why they need to be they're creative and that's why they're thinking about these they're lifelong learners in you know new vulnerabilities novel common vulnerabilities zero day supply chain previous unknowns are there other characteristics i think of what makes a hacker successful in approaching these unknown unknowns definitely i love that question i've been i've been working on that specific question for some time now uh you can see right behind me for anyone who's watching this on video that I have this poster. It's not a poster. It's a canvas. It's very nice. Uh, it says think like a hacker. And that's one of the core uh, ideas that has sort of been the through line for our ethical hacking business, because that is what ethical hackers do. Like uh, ethical hackers are hackers, but it's the idea that we have to, in order to defend against an attacker, we have to think like an attacker. And um, so, I mean, I think the first, answer we should have is by first answering the question, what is a hacker? And so hackers are neither good nor bad, right? Hackers are creative problem solvers. The difference is motivation. So it's, does this person seek to exploit the system in order to gain, get, get some benefit? Or does the person seek to uh, find the issues so they can fix them? That's, that's the difference, but both are hackers. Now, whether you're talking about the good kinds of hackers or the bad kinds of hackers, I've found from really studying this question uh, that there are really are four traits that define what a hacker is. And then there's a bunch of maybe like sub points you can put under each of these, but the big themes that I've found from both observing from just lived experience, and then I've been interviewing hackers asking this question, you know, how does a hacker think? What are the key themes? What are the mindset traits? And there are four, and they are that hackers are curious, hackers are contrarian, hackers are committed, and hackers are creative. So there's these four mindset traits that conveniently all start with C um, as a wonderful way to organize the thoughts. But each of those are uh, a mindset trait that the best hackers have. And when we think about what makes a hacker talented, the more they have of all four of those capabilities, the better they're going to be at this uh, skill. And what's really, really fascinating is I actually think, just as an aside, that this there's a hacker in everyone, in all of us. And if we can unleash these four traits, it, it can enable anyone to look at whatever their goal is differently. But I know that the context of the question right now is talking about how do, how do systems get broken? How do we fix them? And it's the combination of those four traits. Like when I look at people who work for us or a company like us or our peers or our competitors who we respect, um, they, these types of people, they all have these attributes. They're curious. They By contrarian, what I mean by that is that they uh, are willing to think differently than the norms. They're willing to challenge assumptions that people have. Um, and then committed is the idea that they're willing to make sacrifices, be persistent, invest resources. And then creative is that they come up with new ways of doing things. With, I mean, I think that's super cool. And I, I mean, I love trying to put that mindset. I guess where I then ask is, well, how do people start to develop these characteristics? Like, are, do you have, have you seen like techniques that help people grow in that mm -hmm. method? I do. Yes. And so there's, I, I haven't fully settled on the aspect to the question, which is, 
are these nature or nurture? And that's something that I'm actively trying to get my head around right now because it like curiosity, are you born with it or is it cultivated? And um, so I don't necessarily have the answer to that yet. So I'm operating right now as I'm developing this idea uh, under the assumption that these traits exist in all of us. And the question is whether or not we cultivate them or allow them to be revealed. And so are there techniques that people can do to enhance these? I mean, definitely. Uh, so one is just, first of all, just knowing that these types of traits are what make hackers successful, just knowing that it exists. I think it reinforces for people like, oh, the idea of tenacity and persistence and perseverance, that's what makes someone, oh yeah, I already, I kind of already knew that. But that's good. That reminds me that it's not like a hacker, some magical wizard who has this like something that I don't, I, I can have, I can be committed to a minute. I think anyone listening to, if they're sitting down to listen to a podcast, it's because they're a life learner. They want to learn new skills or techniques or ideas. So like that kind of person's like, that sounds like me. I can do that. So for each of these ideas, um, I've, I've sort of been organizing, there's like three or four different things for each of them you can do. So for example, uh, under the idea of curiosity, hackers are curious. One of the things that really stands out to me is that uh, there's this really powerful tool that hackers have. It's a psychological tool. And it's the question, what if, right? The ability to just be like, well, what if I did it this way? What if I did it that way? What if, what if this assumption I have about how this thing works was not true? And that what if question, just like constantly asking that about all different scenarios in a given situation, uh, those those stimulate curiosity, right? Like one of the uh, hackers that works for us, he, he said this quote one time that I was like, I love this idea so much. He says, what I do, this is him talking, he says about himself. He says, what I do, he says, I look for threads. And then when I find a thread, I pull on it. And I keep pulling and pulling and pulling until the thread unravels the sweater or it just comes out and then I realize it's the end of the thread. And I'm like, that's curiosity right there. Being like, well, what happens next? What if I do this? What if I try this other thing? What if I combine things? And uh, so that's a great example of where, uh, like, some people might not have thought about that yet. Okay, well, there's something you can go do is just ask 20 different versions of the question, what if, and giving yourself, by the way, inherent in that is giving yourself the permission to be ludicrous, right? Like, um, to use a metaphor, maybe, right? It's like, to get into college, I need to have graduated from high school. What if you did something else? There are definitely people who have gotten into college without graduating high school. So what if you didn't graduate from high school? What would that have to look like? Well, now that's changing your mind a little bit. Now it's not about like, can I get into AP chemistry? It's like, can I launch a nonprofit that changes the world in some way that Harvard is gonna be like, that's the kind of person we want here. And they can get the you know GED, they'll take the test. Like, we're not worried about that part, we want that. It helps you think differently just by starting to ask that question, what if? I, I like the, the what if concept because in a way, it almost not invalidates the nature versus nurture argument, but you can build in these systems and processes to force those four functions so then the what if doesn't have to be like well what if i'm not curious it's like well if you're not curious like what if you just built a framework that you could mm -hmm. start to go on top of that um 
have you like i guess in that similar way is there any other like systems that you would say to like like how do you get a team to be con contrarian how do you get them to like go against what they've always done sure yeah i actually have a, a great exercise that people could do for that so when uh when people are contrarian, and that word maybe is problematic because there are a few definitions for it. Uh, one definition is a contrarian is the person who disagrees for the sake of disagreeing. Um, we're not talking about that person's annoying. We're not talking about that person. We're talking about the person who's willing to think differently about a situation, who's willing to challenge assumptions. And so here's how you would do that. What you need to do before you can challenge an assumption is you need to identify your assumptions. And just, just identifying them, that alone is really powerful because assumptions are blinding, right? Assumptions are, uh, they we do them sometimes without even being aware of it. And the assumptions are intended to help us be more efficient, more effective, get things done faster or whatever, but we're blind to what's built into that assumption. So here's here's how we identify and challenge assumptions. If you can imagine, you know, take out a piece of paper and you just basically write three columns on our spreadsheet or Word document, it doesn't have to be paper. And in the first column, you write whatever the goal is, right? So someone might be like, well, we need to build this program for this kind of audience or whatever. So you, you state the goal and then, and that's just like one line, whatever. And then in the second column, and you want this to be as many rows filled out as you possibly can, write down what all your assumptions are about what it's gonna take to achieve that goal. So some prompt questions would be things like, how much is it going to cost? How long will it take? What kinds of expertise is needed? Uh, how many people does it take? Uh, what are the barriers? Uh, and you can even get into specific things like, do you need to speak English to do this? You know, it's like, write down whatever assumptions you can come up with. and. Um, and then once you've developed this list and you want that list to be as long as possible, then look at each assumption and challenge it and say, is that true? Does that actually need to be the case? And then here's what's gonna happen. A lot of them, I don't know what the number is, but I'm just making it up from the hip here, but let's say like 90% of them, 95% of them, you're gonna confirm the assumption. You're like, you need to speak English to do that. You need, a million dollars to do that. You can't, you can't do that with fewer than three people, like whatever it is, you're gonna be like, absolutely. You need that. Um, but let's say it's 90, let's say it's 95% are confirmed. That's a good thing. You've confirmed. These are valid assumptions. The other 5% are where the opportunities are. So now you're going to go through it. You're like, yep, this is good. This is good. We should definitely do this. This sounds right. Wait a minute. Do we need to do this one? Maybe this assumption is flawed. Maybe this assumption is outright incorrect. And now you can start poking at that and saying, okay, well, we've identified a flawed assumption about how we're doing things. What are some opposite ways we can do that? And now you can identify, and that's what sort of this third column is, is once you've found those that maybe have flawed or incorrect assumptions, now you give yourself the permission. It doesn't matter how ridiculous the idea is. Like, we need to build a Tyrannosaurus Rex perfect life-size model to do that. It's like, I don't care, put it on the list. Like that's a different way of doing it. And then it just create, it just allows yourself, like allow yourself to state bad ideas because then now you've identified the flawed assumptions, you've challenged those assumptions, you've come up with this whole list 
of other ideas. And a couple of those ideas are going to be viable. And now that's a very productive way to for an organization to say, well, we're not being contrarian just for the sake of like, well, we don't want to do it that way. We found a better or different way to do this. And uh, when Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were writing Goodwill Hunting, which went on to be this like super, super successful award-winning film that launched both of their careers. They're both like, you know, just poor. I don't I like, I don't even think they were in school. They were just like some dudes from Boston at the time. And they wrote this screenplay. And uh, I can't remember which one said it to which one. I think either Matt said it to Ben or Ben said it to Matt. And they were like, don't judge me by the quality of my bad ideas. Don't judge me by how bad my ideas are. Judge me by the quality of the good ones. And that freedom that we give ourselves to say like, let's talk about bad ideas. That is, there's so much power in that. And that's something that my business partner and I are always doing. Like I get so excited when he calls me, he's like, I've got a terrible idea. And I'm like, yes, let's talk about that. Because obviously you ultimately reject the terrible idea. You know, you might be like, that's no, we, we're not, that's there's, here's the eight reasons that's bad, but we can pull a seed out of that. And when you pull the seed out of that, now that becomes a good idea. And there's so much power in that, but you can only get to that. If you identify the assumption, you challenge the assumption and you give yourself the permission to be ridiculous. I love that. I, uh, yeah, big fan of building those bad ideas. The Matt Damon, Ben Apple, I, I did not know that was where they, how they started that. Yeah, they were like completely unknown. I mean, they they wound up winning. I think they won like all the awards, the the Oscar. I think they won all the major awards at the Oscars and then they won something else too. And they were just, I think they were like 20 or 22. No one knew that they were just like complete Hollywood outsiders. And somehow they got Robin Williams to agree to be in this movie. And uh, and then the movie was like, a prof- it was incredible. And, um, and now they're, you know, hyper successful. That's awesome. Um... So this, I mean, I appreciate you sharing those perspectives on hackers, and um, I know that I'm going to start taking some of these systems and heuristics to go back and work with my team on how we can be operating, how we can be thinking like hackers. Um, any, like, that was kind of all the, the any other last, like, thoughts on this space? Um, kind of yeah, like yeah. yeah, I think if we were going to wrap it up in a bow, it would be to think about this in a positive light, right? So one of the things that frustrates me a little bit about the way people talk about security, like you go to a security conference, especially go to like the vendor floor um, or even visualize like what's happening right now. MGM is under this like massive cyber attack. They're offline. And I don't know this for a fact because I'm you know not in any rooms with MGM, but I imagine they are getting absolutely bombarded by security vendors who are saying things like, well, if you had our product, this wouldn't have happened. And it's like, no, that's not true uh, necessarily. Um, yeah, products help. But let's like, we should be thinking about the world collaboratively. We should be thinking about this positively. Like there's, there's smart, passionate people who are working on these problems and security is measurably getting better over time. Um, and I think it's really easy for the doom and gloom to take over, right? Like, oh, these big companies get hacked. Everyone's getting hacked. I'm gonna get hacked. What's the point? And it's like, that's, I don't, I don't think that's a very good way to think about it because the world is evolving and adapting, right? New technology is coming out almost every year. There's something, it's like, oh, this changes society, you know? And 
and the reason we're able to continue to innovate and introduce these technologies and adopt them without the world completely collapsing, because there are evil forces out there who would love to see the world collapse. It's because of passionate people in the security industry who are like making all this effort. So it's there's a really, really positive light to be thinking about here that it's a big problem, but there are really committed people working on it. That's that's super cool. And I appreciate you, Summer, like ending that piece of it. There's um, I mean, there's a kind of similar book called The The Better Better Angels of Our Nature, hmm. where because of the prevalence of news and how connected we are it's so much easier to see the bad but on the whole we are trending towards a more positive society and i think some yeah. like that's a cool way to think of it too of like yeah we focus on the mgm but we similar to how the unknowns we haven't talked about all the things that are going great in mm-hmm. the security space yeah um, i do want to i i appreciate you sharing it i do want to end on a few kind of like call it risk or that which is more of a would you rather of okay of risk, but I'm going to start with a kind of easy one. But um, what's your favorite Ted? Uh, Ted Lasso or Ted Mosby from How I Met Your Mother? <laughs> oh, I have a really profound problem with laugh tracks, so I wouldn't Where? even put How I Met Your Mother in the discussion. And Ted Lasso is like the that might be the per- most perfect television show. Like it's funny, but it you feel emotions, amazing character development, wonderful plot line. Ted Lasso all day. Okay. I appreciate you. I was, it makes me feel better about this podcast. <laughs> um, so then more so like for, when we think about a riskier experience for you, was it writing a book or giving a Ted talk? Hmm. Writing the book was probably the scarier, bigger transition at that time because I had not written a book before. And uh, I was, I had so much fear in doing that. And once I committed to writing the book, I was like, all right, I see this problem. I know the audience. I know the problem they have. I know I can solve the problem. I want to help people. I got to write this book. This is something hard. I'm motivated. Like I had all the reasons to do it. And then the fear starts creeping in. And I was really grateful that um, the company that I worked with to publish my book, they, they actually gave me a, quite a bit of coaching. And one of the things that they coached me on was how to deal with fear. They're like, fear is gonna, fear is what prevents people from writing their books. And that was like the first day we did this like writer's workshop. And that was the first thing we did on the first day. It wasn't like, here's the stru- how you should structure a book. It was like, fear? Okay. And it was really powerful because we did this exercise and we identified our fears and we talked about like uh, how likely that fear is to happen and what's what's the worst case that happens if it does come to be true. And then how do you mitigate it? And so I had fears about things like I was afraid to write a write a bad book or not serve my audience or feel like I was a fraud or or something or someone call me a fraud. And um, so getting through that was was really really difficult. Now I'm on the other side of it. I will I I've been able to take those learnings, implement them to my life. I applied them definitely to the TED Talk, which came next. The book kind of led to the the TED Talk, and I was I had tons of fear. I almost like I spend my time on stages all the time. And when I got on that, as I was about to get on that stage, I was like, am I going to pass out right now? Like I'm, (laughs) the nerves are flying at this moment. Um, But if I was going to, so they both definitely were, were, had their uh, issues, but that's what makes big things worth doing is you get on the other side of it. And you're like, I just learned something about myself. And um, 
But I think the moment in time of transitioning from not being an author to being an author, that was a big leap. I, I genuinely cannot imagine. And but I appreciate <laughs> you sharing that. Um and then maybe the last one, and this one I've been kind of asking like all of our 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 guests is like we talk we've been talking about cybersecurity all this time. We talk about hackers, we talked about the way systems we set up. Like when you think about cyber and the risks organization face, is it more likely to be coming from an external, like the hacker does it right? Or is it more likely like that it's wrong in the sense of like someone cl clicks a phishing link or we didn't set up our system right in the first place? Are are those risks more likely to be external or internal to your organization? I think there might be a flaw in the question itself because I actually don't think the perimeter of an organization exists anymore. Uh, there is no inside or outside. Uh, so even the scenario you just described, right? The uh, the person clicks the link. Like in that's that is an insider threat. That's accidental insider. They did something they shouldn't have done uh, by accident. They weren't necessarily meaning to or, or whatever. Um, and you could say that that attack originated from the outside. But what about the um, the malicious insider, right? Someone who works for say a nation state and they go to work for some big company so they can attack it from the inside. Is that an inside attack? Is that an insider threat? Is that, and that is the insider threat, but is that originating from inside or outside? I don't know, it's debatable. When people work from home and their system gets compromised on their home network, is that inside or is that outside? So I think the way that we should probably reframe it is that the question is probably, are the risks more likely to come because of accidents or intent. And uh, I think you could say that they are all coming from intent, even the ones that are accidental. So someone accidentally clicks the link, they were duped into doing that. So, and the reason I think that's an important distinction to make is that when we think about things like, oh, pe like people all the time, they'll say like, oh, humans are stupid. And it's like, ah, that, I mean, that's not a great way to think about it. Uh, you know, humans click links and they download stuff. And it's like, yeah, because, that was a, you know, that took advantage of some ignorance that they had. That was a well-planned attack. And so intent, I think, is the probably way I, I would answer that because I don't think that the perimeter exists anymore. Okay. No, I appreciate that. Uh, that was all the questions that I had. I appreciate your time. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for sharing your insight. I uh, got a lot that I'm going to go back and start to work on with my team. So awesome. Yeah, and if people want any more information about the book or any of the you know things that our various companies do, connect with me on LinkedIn, watch my TED Talk, whatever. Uh, it's pretty easy. Just go to tedharrington.com and I'm pretty responsive if you want to shoot me a note through there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ted. Uh, that's our show. Thank you.